and welcome back to the dungeon for episode six a new hope for atrocities in age of sigmar i'm matt and i'm evelyn today we're going to talk about a couple of things the first thing we're going to talk about is of course the anvil of souls we're going to go over what we've done or haven't done since last time and we're gonna talk about the games played for this week uh, we had a couple and then we're going to talk about cruel boys we're going to do a little segment on them because they just came out and I think they're really cool and I'm collecting them now. So that's what I'm interested in. So that's what we're going to talk about. Yeah, they're pretty epic. They are pretty awesome. So we're going to talk about them and then uh, we're going to talk about something weird. Uh, we're going to talk about atrocities in the Age of Sigmar and um, we'll get into that a little bit later because when I was thinking about cruel boys, they talk about a lot about how cruel they actually are and how like terrible they are, but in truth, having a lot of the other faction, yeah, having a lot of the other factions in Age of Sigmar had their own atrocities. Like, have they committed atrocities? And if so, what are they? And how bad are they compared to, say, the Cruel Boys, who are by design cruel? And we'll talk a little bit about that. And then finally, we're going to have a uh, little discussion segment and like a question and answer. That'll be it. Unfortunately, there's not going to be a narrative for this one because I just didn't have time the last two weeks. I've been, uh, I've been honestly really busy. I've been, uh, well, not just have been busy, but I've also been sick. Not really sick. I had my COVID booster and I had my flu shot in the same day and it just knocked me out cold for like four days. So, you know, that's unfortunate. Yeah, there's some cats <laughs> up above. We'll be right back for the Invul Souls. Welcome back for the Anvil of Souls. But before we do that, I have a an email here that I got after we did our Day of the Dead episode. And it's from a guy named Connor, who's a good friend of mine. I just figured I ought to read it because it has a lot of good information that I feel like um, maybe we missed last episode. And it specifically talks about how the, the orcs and would feel about Dia de los Muertos. He says, for the most part, I'm probably right. The orcs wouldn't really care if an ard boy or brute comrade died. They were weak. And Gerd doesn't need the week. But, he says, I do think that some clans would honor the dead if the orc in question was awesome enough. He says, in the second edition battle term for war clans, it says that Dechapa's clan was once led by a mega boss, but after he died, a weird knob shaman took his skull, placed it on, on the shaman's staff, and then he said that the boss, the spirit of the boss was speaking through him. Unsurprisingly, all the orcs bought it. There's also a Hammer and Bolter episode about orcs sitting around a campfire that also makes me think that orcs would celebrate the bosses of ages past. And I do agree with that. I remember that episode and it was so good because they were talking about Gaskell. But I think that since Gaz is still living, it's more of like a he's still alive and therefore he's the greatest type of thing. He says, if an orc's deeds are great enough to be honored in their oral tradition, the story may be told over and over again and the deeds might just get more outlandish. And that I could get behind. Because I could see how at first it was like they slaughtered a bunch of free guilders and halberdiers. And then all of a sudden there was like some stormcast in there. And maybe maybe all of a sudden the stormcast general is in there. And then a couple of you know years go by. And all of a sudden it was like a whole stormcast army with a high templar in there. And maybe maybe it was also a city and not just a little garrison. Oh yeah, it definitely sounds like them. So yeah, I could definitely get behind that. And he says, for the bone splitters, I think they would have a similar respect for the fallen bosses or prophets, especially the more zealous clans like Drakfoots. Yes, uh, yeah, I could see that because they kind of talk to ghosts and they interact with ghosts a lot, like they're kind of ghosty boys. But he says, I totally think they would celebrate the deaths of gigantic beasts that they had brought down. 
There was a whole list of mythical beasts the Bone Grins tribe hunted, and it would be really cool if they had equally outlandish stories about these adventures. I like that too, and maybe they grow in every telling, like every tall story, it's a little taller. It reminds me of the Sun's Battle Tome. Yeah, like when you're talking about how they just start out with outlandish stories, I feel like they grow to equal or even more outlandish. Yeah, they could get even more and more terrible as the years go by. Also, the Ice Bones, he says, apparently really love their war pigs. It would be funny to see them holding a candlelit vigil for all their fallen companions. Now, I don't think that they would hold a candlelit vigil for their fallen companions like the war pigs, but I could see them holding a luau and smoking some pig over a fire in honor of their... Hey, I mean, you can't can't waste it. Meets meat, right? Meets meat. I definitely agree with that. Connor, thank you very much for the email. I can't wait for our match next Monday. Me too. It's gonna be epic. Yeah, it's gonna be great. We're gonna play a um we're gonna play a doubles match. We were supposed to play yesterday, but I was still feeling kinda sick, so I decided not to go in, you know, just because that's the right thing to do, I guess. We're gonna play a match that is uh two ogre players versus Connor and my cruel boys. And it's going to be very cool. Yeah, I'm going to play with my old ogres. It's going to be very cruel. This is what it's going to be. Very cruel. Okay, so let's get on to hobby and paint then. Well, let me ask you, what army or armies have you been interested in lately painting for play? I thought with my brain about painting my my ogres like a little more because I know I haven't fully painted them, but I just never actually got around to doing it. I haven't really painted much other than my terrain fees. I painted Why so- would you not bring that up? You, you actually did put paint on it. I did put a lot of paint on it. I put more. I, it was a lot of hours. It was a lot of hours. You put a lot of work into that, and it looks good. I, you're only a little bit. You're pretty close to finishing it. I wouldn't say you did. A, you did a great job too. It looks great with the paint scheme. I wasn't exactly sure what I was going to do, but it ended up looking really festive, and I was like, "Haha, Dia de los Muertos!" You know. Yeah. What else did you do other than mostly paint that? I put together my liege cavalos. What else did you put together with your liege cavalos? Oh, I started. I I'm so close to. No, I did finish putting the other. No, I didn't. Nope, you sure didn't. I did, I, I'm almost done putting together those dudes. I believe you have seven out of ten horses. Something like that. Seven and a half. Yeah, so you're pretty close to getting those put together. And then as soon as you, I told you as soon as you put those together, I will, um, I'll prime them for you so that way you can start painting them. Yep. So that's what you did. You know what? Let's get some promises, some hobby promises from you, oh, from no. the heart. Oh, no. Hobby heart promises. What do you promise what do you swear to get done by next time, by in two weeks' time? Okay, this time, this time, I am going to get my terrain piece painted. I'm so close. I need to, like, finish some black and finish, like, a little purple, like, a little purpley, like, crystal doodads. And then I'll be finished. I'm, I'm going to get that done. And I can, I only have, like, three dudes left. I could probably get together those horses. Okay, you're definitely going to get together the horses. You're going to mm. finish that. Are you going to paint anything else? I'll probably paint, I want to paint my Liege Cavalos. He has so many cool little things on him. Okay, so you're going to get those guys together. You're going to paint your terrain piece completely, and then you're going to paint your Liege Cavalos completely. I don't know about completely. We'll see. See how it goes. Hobby promises. Hobby promises. All right, this is the Anvil of Souls. We have to forge your soul and paint it all. Yeah, she goes, oh, that's funny. I guess that I will talk about what I've been doing. I've put together and primed pretty much all my Cruel Boys army, which included a Marsh Crawler Slogoth, a Break a Boss on Mirebrute Trogoth, a Beast Skewer Killbow, a Snatch a Boss on Sludge Raker Beast, 20 Gut Rippers, 
three Manskewer Bolt Boys, 20 Hobgrot Slittas, and two Kilobosses with Stabgrots and a Stabgrot and a Christmas tree. A Christmas tree? No. I, I actually got the, I just got the uh, the new little grot riding the, the Christmas grot, like Santa grot. Aww. Model? Aww. Yeah, I can't wait. The, I love those Christmas models that GW puts out. So I always get them every year. And I'm going to put it together. That That's actually one of my hobby promises for this time. I'm going to put it together. And I might paint them. I might wait. And let me tell you why. Because I started painting the above-mentioned models. And I painted all the skin on them kind of at the same time. I'm trying to paint this whole army kind of at the same time. So that way, because they're all they have very similar elements. So I'm going to do that. Or I did that. And now I'm going to try and paint more things on them. Like maybe I'll try to paint their clothes or their scare shields. And you know what I mean? All of the, all all red, all brown. All their weapons. That kind yep. of thing. Okay. So... I'm going to be honest here. This is from my heart. I've joined the Separatists. I bought a Star Wars Legion army within the last two weeks. Oh my God. And it's droids. Roger, roger. <laughs> the only thing that's come in is my AAT droid battle tank, but I did put it together. I haven't primed it yet because if I, I know that if I prime it before everything else gets in, I'll probably want to paint it and then I'll lose sight of the cruel boys thing. And then uh, it'll just snowball from there. But I still might paint it if I'm like, I don't know, if I get drunk enough one night, maybe I'll just drunk. Always works out in the end somehow. Yep. So I, it's a droid army and I love droids. It'll be led by General Grievous and I've got a bunch of the battle droids. I've got the, the special armor battle droids and I've got the little roly poly droids that, that have the shields that are so nasty. They're like Jedi taker outers. Ooh. They're pretty, pretty awesome. So that's what I've been doing. And that's what you've been doing. I'll save us all the trouble. I know what Renee has been doing and it is not painting. Well, she has been working a lot too. Yeah. She's and been she's working been sick full time. As well. She was kind of sick with me. Yeah. So but let's talk about this hobby tool segment. This time I've got the pegboard. I love my pegboard. I didn't think I would. I kind of resisted it for a long time. I don't like putting stuff up on the walls that aren't like framed pictures and things like that because I, I thought it might not look good or something. Well, what I did, well, what we did, we bought like a white 20 to $30 cardboard pegboard sheet from Lowe's. We 3D printed these widgets, although you don't really need those. You just need something behind it so that way the pegboard isn't actually touching the wall. And then we screwed the pegboard and the widgets into the studs behind the wall. And then after that, I 3D printed a whole bunch of little um, little holders, little plastic holders for my paints. And so now I have like, I don't know, 120, 130 paints up on this pegboard. Uh, plus I have little, little bits like flock and little bags of stuff, whatever can kind of hang off of it. It's kind of like a hobby pegboard. Yeah. I, like a lot of your tools are on there towards like arm reach. And of course we had to put one up for Renee because we up for me. The only problem is when Duncan's Kickstarter comes in from all those paints, because we I bought the entire paint set. Actually, Renee bought it for me for my birthday, uh, but I just kind of upped the order to include all the paints because I kind of had, I, I wanted to. I'm not going to lie. I wanted to. I don't know where I'm going to put all those paints. Uh, I might have to expand. I might have to get another smaller strip of pegboard, cut it down to size, and then put that up to hold them. No, full, no, you gotta go all in. You gotta get a full another pegboard, put it right on top, touching the ceiling. It's already almost touching this. Okay, so this pegboard, by the way, it's like four feet by four feet. This is not a small pegboard. So we don't have another four feet to the ceiling. Hell, I don't even know if I have two feet to the ceiling. Well, I might have two feet to the ceiling. So the little space 
next to the window behind your monitors. Yes, but you can move work. all of your like not not like your tools. Oh, that's where the electrical box is. You can't. I can't put no, stuff no, no, up on that, that side. On the other on the other cor- side of the corner. Oh, where the um where my television is on the wall. That's oh yeah oh, I can't. Yeah. So I've got two monitors and then a television above it, so that way I can kind of like play video games or work and play. No, I only work when I work and I play when I play. Not both at the same time. So that's the hobby tool segment because I really thought, you know, I didn't think that the pegboard was such a great idea, but once I got it, I found that I wasn't all of a sudden tripping over 10,000 paints all over the place on every table, every surface, in boxes. It was just such a pain because the paints were everywhere and I didn't have a place to really store them, put them. It was hard to figure out where they should go. I have a certain place for every single paint and I know now not to buy a certain shade of red because I can look up there and say oh I already have two of those up there so don't need to buy it again until it runs out yeah the big thing is that you cannot see all the paints so and they're all organized nice and pretty so you're like I need a purple and you look over and it's kind of next to the red it's in sort of a darker section you're like purple next to it's kind of pink and we kind of get into like some lighter like white grays and there's like some skin colors. That's how I organized it. And I, I like, I love that. I love that I can look over and say, all right, let me grab three skin colors or let me grab three or four purples. And as long as somebody puts them back after she's done with them. What if I need them again? As long as you put them back <clears throat> after you are done with them, then the system works perfectly, doesn't it? Sure. Anyway, that's the hobby tool segment. Suggestions for what I can do when Duncan's Kickstarter comes in. Should I hang a whole nother thing or should I, I don't know, steal some of Renee's pegboard over on the other side of the wall? It's hard to get to though. That would be mean. Mm-hmm. I'm open to suggestions. Either way, um, we're going to take a little bit of a break and then we'll get right back with Games Played. Hey, welcome back. We're talking about Games Played and I'm going to let Evelyn go first because she played a game um, with her Bone Reapers, right? Against um, Connor's Cruel Boys? Yes, yes, I did. So this game was pretty epic. We used the type of play where you would roll off for the map, you'd roll off for your objective, and a like sort of twist, a ruse that each of you has. So you guys used open play? Yeah, open play. I couldn't remember what it was called. And we ended up using the one that kind of felt like capture the flag. So in the middle, there was a an objective. The map that we rolled up, one person's in the middle and the other person's on the two short sides. And I ended up getting the middle, so I had the ball first. The way that I set up, I had my horses in the middle. And then I sort of have everything, everything horses, my... Your infantry? Yeah. Your blocks of infantry? Yeah, like my blocks of infantry, like to the left... And then I had like, I stuck a unit over on the right because he had stuck one singular unit over on the right. Was it his break it boss? It, on, it was. Yeah, the uh, that break it boss on Trog. Yeah, it was pretty funny because I stuck it over there because I knew that either he was going to move and be like, haha, you fell for my trap. Or he was going to stay there and I needed something to block it, which would have been so awful if he stayed there. But so I ended up pulling that game out. I grabbed it with my horses and ran to the other side while, uh, you know, holding up my ranks. And my ruse happened to be that I could bring in a, a fallen unit. Neither of us knew this ruse before we revealed it. We actually did it. So I never, <laughs> yeah. I never figured out what his was. He never ended. I guess it never became prevalent. But I brought back a whole another block of twenty Mortec guard, and he was ah. Oh. Just see the despair. Yeah, you took like two, what, two turns to kill the stupid Mortec guard. And then you just, with like half his army. 
And you just brought it back and we're like, here's another roadblock for you, buddy. Yeah, by the time I brought that back, I have a feeling there was, he had a little bit of a chance to give our horses, but the way that they can move, they have like a 12 inch move. So, and, and I have a feeling if I attached it to anything else, they it might not have been the same. His, oh, it was so nasty. Like the entire time he was giving me mortal wounds and like minus to hits, minus to wounds. Oh, any other, any other army, because my army, I chose Petrifex Elite, which it negates one rend, only one rend. So like something had minus two, then it'd be one from an attack. So like he had a bunch of rend, like his entire army had rend pretty much. But I was, if it was any other army, I, I would have died. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like you play that game pretty smart, taking it with the horses and leaving. When you're the attacker in that case, which he was the attacker, you really want to split your units up half and half because what you don't want to have happen is your opponent grabs that football, so to speak, and then runs to the other side of the board. And then you're stuck trying to kill off their whole army and not being able to because you know, they have everywhere to run to and you've got very little mobility. You really have to set up like a couple of, at least a couple of fast, hard hitting units on the other side. Like it's fine to put most of your guys on one side, but you really kind of needed, I feel like if he had put his Sludge Raker Beast and maybe, I don't know, a Sludge Raker Beast and a couple of crossbows on one side. He had six crossbows, right? Yeah, yeah. So if he had put those two units on the one side, as soon as you grab that football, he could have been like, okay, well, I'm going to shoot six crossbow bolts at the your guys with the football, and then I'm going to uh, charge them with the muckraker beast, and then they would have crumbled. Oh, yeah, those horses are so, like, they, they really aren't, I've never found a way to use them as actual hard-hitting units. Like, they do damage, but they don't do enough damage. I don't have enough of them, to be fair. I only had five. That They really are good for either running up or running back. And another thing I think he did, which I wasn't so sure was very smart, is he set up most of his army first because he had a battalion. Oh, that's right. He had the battalion. He has the battalion where he sets everything up as, like, one drop. And it's such a... If you set up almost your whole army first, then your opponent can really look over and say, well, let's see how I can counter this and that and this and that. And Evelyn understands strategy. She will definitely take advantage if you set up most of your army first. She'll say, okay, well, all I really have to do is hold you up here and here. So let me put my hold up units here, put up a unit behind it. And there's not really much he can do for a couple turns. Yeah, I believe that this was the act. This was the only time that I actually used my Gothasar Harvester to its full extent as getting both of my Mortech Guard units. Like I stuck them together most of the time, and I really had like five rolls to see if I could keep these dudes alive. It well, was the thing about it is every other game that I've heard of, she was like, "I charged my Gothasar Harvester in, and then he killed it." And I'm like, "Yeah, don't do that. Keep it behind the Mortech Guard and just." use them as a shield block and this game she actually did it and look what happened like he just couldn't get to that gothstar harvester with enough firepower and and enough like troops to actually get it it was funny he actually ended up engaging with my harvester which i was happy because you know i do love getting that thing into battle once almost all of my mortec guard was done but before i could bring them back he managed to get a spears into them and i was like this guy has so many mortal wounds, and uh, and I mostly just murdered them. Yeah, those spears are not particular. I mean, 
they're okay at holding things up, but they're not particularly great at taking things out from like full health. Like if you have a little unit of five, yeah, they'll probably do, you know, a couple mortals and then a couple of wounds and kill them off. Especially if they don't have that great of an armor save. But I got this, our harvester probably looked over at however many wounds, probably maybe four, I'm guessing maybe five total. And he was like, shrug, okay, whatever, <laughs> you know? Yeah, because most of my army, I found out, or I've noticed anyways, except for like my liege, has a four-up save. Like, it's a pretty consistent four-up save. Not, even my Mortec Guard, they don't have like a five or six. It's definitely a four-up. But that that also means that like they have a they have a deathless a six up like and like kind of, oh I'm not gonna die which I guess is really good yes it's very good so that was her game I guess I'll talk about my game now on last Thursday night Alan came over and we had a game between my cruel boys of the army that I put together and his Slanesh and it was possibly one of the best games of Age of Sigmar 3.0 that both of us have had. And I know that because he actually told me after he was like, this is the best game I've ever had of Age of Sigmar 3. I was like, yeah, me too. It was super bloody. There were three objectives, one at each sort of corner and one in the middle. And then we had to pick a uh, opposite board edge to set up on. And it was pretty much capturing objectives. What would happen? It was such a back and forth like he would charge in and kill some of my boys. And then I would charge it back with my heavy hitting units and I would murder the units that he just charged with. And then he charged my units with like his special character. And oh my gosh. So this is the worst part. We thought that summoning a keeper of secrets with that army was like 19 or 20 points or something. And so at the end of like the first round, he had something like 16 points because he was very smart about taking his archers and saying, okay, I'll... I'll shoot one guy here, one guy here, one guy here, one guy here. So he was trying to wound each one of my units at least once. So that way he could get the maximum amount of points, which is super smart. And at the end of it, he had 16 and he was like, oh, summoning a keeper is probably 16. And we looked it up. It's 12. So I had just killed his keeper of secrets and he was like, guess who's coming back, baby. And I was like, no. Oh no. Yeah. So his keeper secrets immediately came back on his second turn. And that was just, oh, that was wrenching. And so then he was like, um, let's see, what did he do? He charged them in and he killed a couple of my units with, he had actually a lot of, uh, a lot of heroes. And a lot of high cost heroes like he started with a keeper of secrets and he had um uh, he had sigvald but it was real he was real playing real cagey with them like the first turn he hit him so the second turn he charged him out the second turn but you know i, th I think he was playing a little bit and he um too cagey with him when he rolled for his charge he only got like a three or something so he could only five attacks which is really unfortunate because Having that Keeper Secrets making him attack twice, super good. Yeah, that sounds so nasty. It is, it is. Actually, the Lord of Pain was better. His Lord of Pain, it dished out some pain. Let me tell you, I had to kill that thing right quick. They, his first turn, he wiped out 12 Brutes. Just straight wiped them out. Oh my god. Yeah, those things have, I'm sorry, 10 Brutes. My apologies. Uh, he wiped out 10 Brutes. And those things have three wounds each. So he did a solid 30 wounds, most of them not mortal, to things that have a four-up save. That I may have a three up save, by the way. I gave them an extra save. Oof. 
So yeah, he, he murdered them hard. And I was like, Oh, that's so many points down the drain. Ooh, that was, that was a hard, um, <laughs> that was a hard turn. That first turn. Anyway, by the, by the third turn, we both didn't have a whole, whole lot left, but he had summoned in a fresh keeper of secrets, which was, you know, I had no way of pretty much def- killing this keeper of secrets. And he was like, what should I bring in? And I was like, well, you know what I've always found is really good in every game of corn that I played. He was like, what? I was like, summon in like 20 or 30 demonettes. Because <laughs> summoning in 20 to 30 just bodies on anywhere, but especially on an objective on the third turn of a game is just devastating to your opponent. It is so hard to get rid of those bodies because your, your armies are already kind of spent. You've already, you know, you've, you've traded your ace in the holes. You, and anybody else is like on their last leg. It's unless you're already beating them, which I was not already beating him. It was, it was really difficult. And we played it out all five turns and it was super close. The, the thing that cinched it for me was that he let me have the first turn, which I thought was a mistake. And the reason why is because I surged my entire army up and took all three objectives the first turn. And then I said, come get me off of these objectives. And he couldn't get me off of two of the objectives. He just couldn't. It was not a thing he could do. He could get me, he got me off the one in the middle. I'll tell you that much. He killed those brutes. That was the one I didn't think he would get me off of. Those poor brutes. And so for almost, for two turns, I was holding objectives and he kind of wasn't. And so at the end, even though, by the way, he almost wiped my army. I think I only had like one crossbow, the whatever, what is it called? The the artillery piece. That's the only thing I had left at the end of round five. Oh God. But I have more points. Yeah. I mean, in my game, sort of coming back to that, but he also let me go first, which was like, ooh. Yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, in a game with objectives, I feel like letting your opponent go first is just a good way of having him tie up those objectives, especially if they're in the middle or like in the middle of each, each sort of quarter. Yeah. I notice it's a little odd. I've gotten let first more times now than I did when I played ogres, which people want to have that counter punch. They want the counter punch. So they're, they're like, you can go first that way you get up and then I can charge you. But like in 40 K when they charge you with a bunch of units, they're charging units fight first in age of Sigmar. All of a sudden when they charge you with a bunch of units, like if you only put one unit up in the middle and then you, you look over them and say, okay, their turn, then their job is simple. They just charge that one unit and they can kill it off with, you know, some power units and it really can't do anything. But if you put your whole or close to your whole army on three different objectives and then look at him and say, go ahead, charge all my guys. It's really difficult for your opponent not to do that. And it's also difficult for him to do it and succeed because, you know, you go back and forth with activations as long as you have a melee army that is. Yeah. I mean, I have a feeling letting someone go first is only really beneficial. I guess if you have a slow moving army, maybe, but his army doesn't seem very slow moving. No, it's not really slow moving. Although certain parts of his army don't really move that well. It either can't move well or it shouldn't move at all. And if it does move, then he's kind of like got to take it in the chin for a turn because he won't be able to shoot correctly. Yeah, it's funny when he let... When Connor let me go first, uh, it was really close, up close and personal. So I was really surprised that like, but also I'm kind of not because I charged everything up and he got like bonuses for it. He was like, if this dude doesn't charge, then you get like minus to something. Yeah. Don't remember exactly what it was. 
Well, either way, the game that I played was just the best. It was it was exactly what you would want in a Warhammer game. It was close. It was just Treachery. fantastic. Yeah, it was really good. Really good. And I think that the next time, and by the way, this was just Alan trying to explore the new Slanesh range and trying to like figure out how the new battle tome worked. I get the feeling, and me too, of course, for my orcs, but I get the feeling that he's going to be a real force to be reckoned with once he like gets everything completely down pat. And if it wasn't against me, if this army was playing against like say any other sort of person he probably would have just like smashed them hands down oh yeah like i probably would have gotten smooshed is i mean it was he played very well very very well so you know kudos to him for that definitely all right i think that's all of our games played unfortunately it was only two games played i was supposed to have another game but again i was under the weather but don't worry I'll come next week and then I will absolutely uh, tell you guys about it in episode seven. So I think that's all for games played. Um, We're going to move on to the meat of the podcast next. And we're going to talk a little bit about Cruel Boys. So we'll be right back. See ya. Welcome back. We're going to talk about the Cruel Boys a little bit. And uh, I I love that some of this information I got out of the core rule book, which actually had quite a bit about cruel boys and then some of it i got out of um the actual battle tome the new orc battle tome that just came out the worklands one first i guess we should start with how the cruel boys were really made so it all actually goes back to the um the age of myth gorkamorka was sort of rampaging around and doing sigmar's dirty work and the chaos gods whispered into gorkamorka's ear that he was just like, he was kind of a slave. He wasn't really doing what he wanted. He was just kind of doing Sigmar's dirty work and he wasn't really blah, blah, blah. You know, chaos whispers. And that eventually upset Gorkamorka and made him snap. And he walked from across all eight realms all the way to the world's, uh, the edge of the universe. And then he just spat into the void and then turned around to like do it again. It is said that the cruel boys were birthed from the chaos whispers in Gorkamorka's head. So I'm, I mean like all the green scenes were supposedly birthed from Gorkamorka, but I'm guessing these guys were influenced by these whispers. And so I'm thinking that's why the cruel boys are kind of sick in the head because we know that chaos is malicious. Chaos is, is, twisted and they derive cruelty from pain i mean i'm sorry pleasure from pain and pain inflicted and just all kinds of terrible things so that's how it said that they were birthed and we're talking the age of myth here gw does a lot of revisionist history but i like that it kind of this kind of does have a little bit of an inkling to where you know to earlier things we already knew that chaos whispered in gorkamorka's ear like this was This was sort of lore all the way back to AOS one, where they were talking about how all the gods made this like pantheon of order and then how it fell apart. Even though it's revisionist history, it does feel natural if, if that makes sense. So what happened next, Evelyn? So a little bit later, they went down into the swamps and Darwin's natural laws really went to work on them immediately. Uh, Every one of them who like got noticed, stuck their head up, or were like grew too big, were quickly eaten, murdered, poisoned by some other sneaky underling or monster that existed there. And anyone who had anything that was magical or shiny or worth anything was killed for it, or they lost it in the swamp, never to be seen again. I mean, if you think about it, orcs are naturally belligerent, loud, and big. 
right? Anybody who is belligerent, like too overly rambunctious, they pretty much just got killed in some way, shape or form because a beast, like a, one of the beasts of the mire would look at them and say, Hmm, something's head to eat. And then it would eat them. Right. Yeah. And anybody who was particularly too big, then they would, they would also get noticed. Right. Because you can't really hide that well if you're that big. Yeah, there's no way. Plus, a swamp doesn't have very many things to hide behind. Or alternatively, since they were cruel, they would, you know, they would be murdered by their underlings. They would be like, "Why does he get to be in charge? I should just murder him, and I'll be in charge." Yeah, you know, orcs are sort of like that. You know, something. It's if if you're not like, if you're not the strongest, then you can't be up there. Because somebody else who's stronger is going to get up there. Yeah, but in this case. If you're not the sneakiest, you're not going to stay up there. If you're not the cruelest, sneakiest, stabbiest little son of a gun there was, then you're not going to stay the leader. You have to be the cruelest, the sneakiest, the most underhanded to stay a leader amongst these orcs. And you have to live. And you have to live. Anybody, it was funny because in the in the book it actually talks about how anybody that had like glowing magical gubbins and stuff, they would get noticed and usually their underlings would kill them to try to steal it or they would just get noticed by a monster and they would eat it or they would drop it into the swamp and just never see it again. I love that they're kind of rangy and have this like, I don't care attitude toward acquiring new things because their stuff breaks or gets lost in the swamp all the time. And after a little while, they're just like, I don't care. I'll just make a new spear. It only takes like a couple minutes. So they make these like really shoddy spears that really don't do a whole, whole lot, but then they put all kinds of muck and crap and, and like swamp guts and stuff on them. So there's like all this disease on it and that's how they kind of do their damage. And put like plus one to damage for that poison. Oh, that's so disgusting. What I particularly love is that what they'll do is they'll, they'll lure enemies into their swamps or they'll bring the swamps to the enemies and then they'll purposely disarm their enemy and watch their weapon go into the swamp. And then have you ever lost like a boot in a, in a, like lake before. Oh yeah, definitely lost you, a couple of shoes. Like you'll never ever see that again. You just you won't be able to find it. It just so disappears. Can you can you imagine you're this like stormcast eternal and you've got this great sword made of sigmarite metal or let's say a hammer made of sigmarite metal and you get into this fight with this guy and and you like you do a couple of blows and then he disarms you like a riposte or something that disarms you as he like cuts you across the, let's say the, the arm and then you drop it and he rushes you and bowls you over. And when you get up, you're like, where's my weapon? Oh, crud. You know? Oh, wouldn't that be terrible? That'd just be so awful. I mean, and that's if you were like a Sigma, you know, a superhuman Stormcast Eternal. If you were just a normal human, you oh. might just drop it in yourself. Yeah, and that would suck. Oh, yeah, it'd be so awful. Um, I also like how they don't attack, uh, like, a garrison or, like, uh, something that, like, they're trying to get without, until they figure out how to defeat it, like, until they figure out how to, like, normally you see orcs, they charge forward, they, uh, impulsive almost, maybe, but the, they don't really rush towards the wall to die as much as you hear. They will apparently just crawl through the muck and swamp and for for miles just to stab a person in the back it's kind of interesting how it's just like oh that settlement over there we're not going to attack it until we figure out how to take it down and they'll plan and plan and plan and there's a sort of weird meritocracy going on there because a guy who or like let's say they're in a planning session and the smallest of them the weediest 
the rangiest of them decides, hey, you know what we should do? We, sh- we should line the barrows of, of the bottom of that wall with some sort of sap and then we should light it on fire and then everybody will get woozy and fall asleep and then we can crawl in. And their leader will just be like, okay, and they'll do that. There's no like, there's nothing like, well, that's not my plan. So he's not doing it. They just don't care. They're, they're like, oh, that sounds like a better plan. We'll do it. If it's a sneaky plan, it's a good plan. Yep. If it's the sneakiest plan, it's the best plan. And like she said before, they will literally crawl as long as it takes just to stab a person in the back, just to not. And, and they don't believe that fighting fair is something that you should ever do under any circumstance ever because if you fight fair, you're dead. And that, I mean, that makes sense for, for where they grew up, where, who they, you know, what tribes they belong to and all the monsters that are much, much stronger than them. That's around their swamp. They can't fight fair. They have to fight dirty. Otherwise they would never, ever get ahead in that swamp. Right. Yeah. Like that swamp doesn't fight fair. So they probably don't even know how to fight fair to be fair. To be fair. And it also says they take a kind of perverse pleasure on destroying or beating up or enslaving weaker things than them because they're like, of course we're going to, it's, it's not sneaky enough to figure out how not to get beaten up. So we're going to beat it up. <laughs> I like that a lot, but they really, I will say they are green skin to be feared because at least you can rely on normal green skins to like charge you. I know a normal green skin it can be compared to a charging shaved gorilla. So that's what's coming at you. Oh, Jesus. But at least it comes at you every time and you know exactly what it's going to do, right? A little bit of variation, but mostly they're going to charge you. Now imagine this is an army of, say, chimpanzees with the ability to rip your arms off. That's how strong they are. But instead of charging you, they're going to sneak up behind you and rip your arm off from behind (laughs) and then stab you in the you know, in the kidneys. Stab you in the jugular. It's funny because in the Dominion book, they have, they, they like lead around these storm casts, including one of them that's like a Knight Arcanum, I believe. And they're just stuck wandering around in the swamps, finding, they find like traps and I think a couple of them get injured and they're this, the swamp and things are eating away at their clothes and eating away at their armor. So their armor is all pitted. And, and I'm, can you imagine walking around and being led in circles for days and days as your armor, this harder than iron Sigmarite armor is just pitted full of holes. And then they just come up and start sticking you with spears. Not even like good spears, just like wood. Yeah. And like maybe something like, on the end. It's like wood and a little bit of something tied to it, like bits of rusty metal or like shale or whatever they could find. And they're like, if it breaks, who cares? You just fashion another one in a couple minutes. No problem. Easy peasy. So they come up and stab you through this rusted armor when you're all super tired and trudging through muck and frustrated all to hell because, you know, they've been walking around for days and days. It's just funny. Uh, Yeah, I really like how they choose to follow Kragnos because you know he's the apex predator that they that they think of him as and they think of him as somebody who like you crack open a shell destroy some like a wall in a city for example and for them to just feast on the easy prey inside how you know how do you break open the shell of an impenetrable thing but you you need what's inside but you can't break it open you're just not strong enough answer is you lure another apex predator near it and wait until they crack open the shell, and then you eat what's or steal what's inside. 
And they are sneaky. Seems like a thing they would do. So they do follow Kragnos. They've got like cave paintings where they followed him in in the age of chaos, I guess, and they did horrible things. You know, he was he's the end of empires, right? Yeah, and their whole thing is they're really crafty and intelligent about how they wage war, how they fight in these wars. Like they really sneaky. Yeah, so they don't actually just throw wave upon wave at the gates. They wait, they they stay outside, they clatter their shields to make you stay up all night so that way you you haven't had any sleep and you're all tired the the day after. Oh, it's so terrible. Yeah, that's, that's just that's a really bad one. They use those scare shields to make it look like they're originally they were to ward off the predators to make it seem like there are other predators around that are bigger than them. They use it just to scare you. And they put they put this bioluminescent paint on it so that way you can see it in the dark. Oh, that's so just all awful. you see are the like nasty faces of these scare shields and they're banging on them and they're going and just making all kinds of horrible noises. There's an entry about the the killaboss on cat looking like thing. It looks kind of like a ridge cat. And they're talked about how the uh, the mount actually has the ability to throw its voice. So the mount will start this thing that sounds kind of like a hyena's laugh. And then and it'll be like behind whoever it is that they're stalking and the person will turn around to because they think it's right behind them and then it'll pounce on its actual behind and then the orc on top will will like make the same noise that half laugh half screech while they're pouncing oh that's just awful i love it they're so sneaky it's so sneaky so underhanded although they have this really you know i didn't think i'd like hobgrots at all i didn't think i'd understand what they were for and i was like these they don't really make sense but now i kind of understand because they're they're an ally for trading in because they trade with the chaos dwarfs for technology pretty much the shiny gubbins guns or crossbows and it's interesting because these chaos dwarves or they refer to them as hashat worshiping duarden but we all know that's chaos dwarfs and so what will happen is um, they get like the worst of the worst gear that's made from like uh, like exiles and blacksmith apprentices and stuff that no chaos dwarf would ever deign to use. But then they trade for slaves, right? Slaves and captives. And the orcs give them just the like weakest captives, the ones that are like, sickly and so they're both thinking that they get like good deals because they're both trying to screw each other oh that's just being being sneaky and and they have to use these hobgrats as like intermediaries because apparently they are less trustworthy these orcs i want to repeat this again these orcs are less trustworthy than grots Grats. Yes, grats. Let that sink in for a second. These cruel boys are less uh, trusted less than the hobgrats that have to travel in packs and are conniving and terrible. And anytime you mess with one, like 20 more will jump on you and like stab you to death. <laughs> it's funny because the, the hobgrats think they're like masters of trade and they, they travel in these packs and they, they take all the shiniest gubbins from trade with the chaos dwarves. So the hobgrats are the ones with like super weird experimental weaponry from these chaos dwarves that are made 
by like exiles and people that kind of don't know what they're doing. And the goblin's like, eh, you know, it's a living. Shiny. <laughs> yeah. So they're using like flintlock pistols that haven't been tested and stuff like that. Just as likely to like explode in your hand as at the enemy. I'm like, Darts and stuff. Oh, that'd be terrible. They do give an example about why they're not to be trusted, and they call the example the Wars of Broken Promise. So, at some point in the past, these cruel boys must have tried to deal with the Chaos Dwarves like directly and then decided to like kill them after the trade or before the trade or during the trade and set off a bunch of wars. And so now the only way they can trade is through these goblin intermediaries. That makes sense. That sounds about right. Yeah, so <laughs> it's just funny that they're less trusted than goblins or grots. So you wanna you wanna take the swamp boss scum drag, because he is so cool. Oh, he is so nasty. This is a special character. Like he like he said that his name is Swamp Boss Scumdrek. And he has a swamp, but his swamp got drained by some magical means. He wasn't he didn't do it. He somebody else did it. Um but he immediately looked at the roots. Um, of the swamp trees and said, oh yeah, I can imprison nasty monsters in there and then organize a maze-like fighting pits and set them free and then bet on who would die first. Um, oh, and, As you do. Uh, yeah, as one does. And how to make a ton of money and teeth off of it. So not only does this guy have just like the nastiest swamp monsters trapped in between these roots and, and manipulates with pulleys and ropes, he lets loose battle captives to see how long it would take them just to die. Naturally, he cheats, of course, being a cruel boss with both claws. Yeah, so this guy, oh, it's so cool. He learned how to make his fortune through gambling and cheating. And and so now they, it talks about how he also will, um, he'll sometimes tell the onlookers, like the orcs that are onlooking, he's like, oh, if you want to get a better view why don't you go down and follow the captives? You can prod them along and maybe you can make sure that they get killed by whatever beast that you actually want them to get killed by. Cause the bets remember. And then while they're down there, while the orcs are down there, like prodding them, he'll bet with other orcs on which of those orcs will die and how. Oh my God. That's, that's amazing. Right. It's so cruel. It's so awesome. So he's, can you imagine a whole swamp that's drained and all these cages made out of these, these like swamp trees and there's just nasty creatures in every one of them. All of them are like super upset. Imagine you're like in a tree. And it's all uh, like a giant maze too. I mean, it'd be interesting to look at. It would be cool. I really love this guy. To me, he stands out as my favorite character. Should have, he should have his own that's terrain cool. piece. Wink, oh, that would be nudge, so nudge. cool. Oh, that would be so awesome. You could like have a beast come out of it or something. Yeah, or trap a beast in it. That would be really cool. It's good thinking, Evelyn. G-dubs, get on that. <laughs> Immediately. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Yeah. And the fact that he's made a fortune in gold and teeth off of this. I mean. That's, just, that's ingenious. Just ingenious. So I also like this thing called a marsh, uh, marsh crawler slogoth. It's kind of a bottom feeder kind of it's a carrion eater and it's super duper lazy even for a trog like trogoth it's considered to be lazy what it does is it just crawls around on the swamp on all fours and looks for either dead or dying things to, to eat num nums yep and it doesn't really care what it is it'll still eat it and so all the other orcs the orcs think that it's not a very good predator but it actually does it actually will like raise its head up and and 
snap some, at something and try and gobble it down whole. What the Grotz did, the Hobgrotz were like, well, we'll just attach this rope around its neck with a really, really heavy rock on the end. So that way it can't bring its head up to bite, right? Ooh. And and then they put a howdah on its back. It crawls around and can't bring its head up to bite them, the things on the howdah. So it's kind of like, like a swamp shark looking thing? Yeah, almost like a swamp shark. Because it can smell fresh blood from miles and miles away. And so they use these things to lead them to invaders, to people in the swamp, to anything. Fresh kills. I, You know, I always wondered, I was kind of wondering because what it does in the game is it gives everybody a plus one to hit within 18 inches. All, all your allies anyway. I always wondered, I was like, how exactly does it do that? Because it's like just goblins on its back with like a, a drum. And I'm like, all right, I guess. The story behind it's kind of neat because they bang the drums to the beat of Kragnos's um, hoofs. It's more of an amplification of Kragnos. Oh, God, that's terrifying. So as Kragnos is, like, pounding through wherever he's pounding, these goblins are beating these drums to the same exact beat, and that's what gives them the plus one to hit. So it's basically just, like, a, you know... Just... It, like, mimics his hoofbeats. So Maybe in a psychic re- um, reverberation or something. Yeah, just a... It's already what's driving them, so this like... We're going to talk a little bit about atrocities after this. Before that, I want to kind of talk about what my favorite models have been so far to put together, to paint uh, from, from this range. I will say, I think the absolute best model that I just fell in love with as soon as I put it together was the... It's the Break-A-Boss on Meyerbrut Trogoth. That guy is so cool looking and the model is this big old trog and the guy on top. And, oh, man, he is just nasty. I think it's so far been my favorite model. Is that the model where the dude, like, yanks on the chains and, like, damages the dude but gives him extra attack? Yes, it does. This is D3 Mortal Wounds. For each one you take, you get two extra attacks. It's so nasty. Very nasty. That's been my favorite one so far to put together in paint. Although I keep looking at that Marsh Crawler Slogoth and that thing just looks so nasty. It's just, it actually looks like this thing is crawling maybe through a swamp or so. He looks sneaky almost. Sneaky. Yeah. And he's got the hout on his back with the goblins and they're all, I'm sorry, the grots and they're like all beating the drums and stuff. I definitely like them. What about you, Evelyn? I have to say my favorite it's either the same, break a boss on the Trogoth, or uh, what was his name? The guy on the Vulture, he did some nasty stuff too. There's a special guy on a Vulture, and his name is Gobsprack, and he's the mouth of Mork. Yeah, his whole thing is like he does things. Like, you <clears> know, a Vulture is like a scavenger, but I think it's a little more of like a just eats everything and, and doesn't, and it eats leftovers and, you know, can't waste good meat. So the way that these things are hunted and the way they get them are so nasty. What the vultures will do, they will peck at the inside of a swamp tree until it becomes kind of bare and dies. And then what it'll do is it'll kill something or it'll find something that's dead and it'll impale it on the swamp tree and wait until the corpse gets really nice and ripe before eating it. It likes it nasty ripe, like terrible, disgusting. That's just gross. And so what this nasty ripe corpse will do is it will attract other things to the area to like feed, to try to feed off of it. And so the vulture will be just circling overhead and it'll come down and get those things 
and kill them or wound them and put them on the spike. And pretty soon you've got just this enormous tree full of corpses that are sweltering in the swamp. Oh, that's just so you feel, I feel like you just get like this clearing of it. You, you'd come upon and you'd be like, nope, no, nope, other way. Yeah. So the way that these, um, these orcs have to do it is they have to sneak up on this thing and they have to find this meat, wherever is the rankest, rottenest meat there, and they have to poison it in a way that'll like make the corpse rip a vulture delirious. Mm-hmm. And while it's laying on the ground going, Aah! they go up and just beat it into submission. Hope that they beat it into submission. Hope that they get got the the poison right. Keep in mind, this is a vulture. Vul- this thing is probably immune to most things. They have to brew up like some specific potion or something because this thing eats rotten meat. And really rotten meat. Yeah, really nasty, disgusting, rotten meat that's already infested with everything that the swamp has to offer. Yeah, they'd have to... That'd be something real specific. And then they beat it into submission. Hopefully. And so Gobsprack, he's got a whole bunch of different things. Like he's even his um, and, and then they put trophies on him to signify like their importance and how how like great they are. And so like Gobsprack has he has the hand of a greater demon of Zinch. Oh, no. And so when they normally when they die, they, they like wither away because they're made out of chaos, the stuff of chaos. But in this case, he willed it not to to wither away so that way he could show it to all his friends. Oh my God. And so it's kept in place by his will. That's, that's just some will right there. Right. And it's just like a whole bunch of heads and of things that they've killed. And then his, um, he's got this little grot that has this mandrake root that screams and, and like deafens you and makes your ears bleed and maybe kills you. Maybe kills you. Maybe kills you. I think that grot also has a knife that is, stabbed me a couple of times and done more wounds than like his spear did one yeah, day. Yeah, the, the backup stabber. Well, he's a he's a caster, so he's not that great at stabbing you with his, his spear. Or actually, he has got a staff. He is so nasty. Oh, and you know what he also has, which actually made um, Renee really sad? Okay, so he's got the decapitated head of Methusai of Hallowheart, whose warding gestures were found wanting. So I guess like a a caster of hollow heart. And then he's got, and this guy was eaten from the inside out by tapeworm squigs. It's disgusting. He's got the feather of a juvenile Phoenix that's nailed to his trophy rack. And then the rest of the Phoenix, he ate it raw. Oh, that's just nasty. And it, every once in a while, it gives him terrible indigestion, fiery mm. indigestion because it constantly dies and then is reborn inside of him. Oh yeah. He also has a, um, he says he regrets it. The eyeballs of the seven seers and a clutch of mind-expanding mushrooms that he harvested from Snazgar Stinkmullet's corpse. Renee's really upset that he killed Snazgar Stinkmullet. That was her. That was her jam. Oh no! That was the grot with the the mushrooms growing out of his ears and mm-hmm. growing out of his brain. He had like deaf cap mushrooms growing. He was pretty insane. Atop his gnarled staff is the mutilated hand of the Lord of Change, known as Skangclaw, kept in the world of the living only by the shaman's fierce determination to show it off to his mates. <laughs> I think that's so funny. That's amazing. He's got the skull of the big Ripa, which is a super predator that I'm sorry, a super predator that hunted him until he cast the foot of Gork and stomped him into the ground. <laughs> oh my. 
So can you imagine the photogork just comes down and stomps this poor super predator down until he dies from it? No, he kicked it to death. The way that their lore kind of works is there's a special character who is supposed to be this like really, really fantastic, the cruelest of the cruel, Borkuk Desly, right? Borkuk Desly was supposed to be like the greatest, sneakiest, most cunning green skin of all the grinning blades. Nobody wanted to challenge him because anybody who said stuff behind his back, he would like appear behind him and, and kill him with this great white sword. Oh God. His great white choppa for talking Giddish. <laughs> talking Giddish. And so... One day, Gobsprack appeared behind him and was like, I'm the boss now. And this guy was like, uh, yeah, you're the boss. Yeah, sounds good. See you later. No problem. Uh, I follow you now. And then a couple hours later, Kragnos came around, like teleported behind Gobsprack or in front of Gobsprack. And Kragnos was like, I'm the boss now. Wow. that's And so the reason why um, Gobsprack is called the mouth of Mork is because he understands Kragnos's language. Nobody else understands him. So Kragnos had been leading pretty much by just like grunts and gestures because nobody could understand what he said. And so now he's got an interpreter. And so he'll speak to Gobsprack and then Gobsprack will tell everybody else what to do based on what he said. Wow. It's funny because if anybody gives him any lip, then Gobstrack just looks over at Kragnos and says, uh, that guy said that he doesn't want to follow you anymore. He's, he said that you're terrible. You're a poopy head. <laughs> and and also that you smell weird. Oh, and you're weak. You're weak. <laughs> yeah, you're weak. And then and then Kragnus just stomps this poor orc into the ground. And I can imagine Gobsprack like looking around like, anybody else have any other objections? Couple others got like tangled up in the mess. They're just like like, no, no, it's okay. So I think that's just about enough of uh, these orcs, as fun as they are to talk about. I would love to get into talking about atrocities in the Age of Sigmar and how they match up to the atrocity that we're about to talk about. For I'll, I'll start with what I consider to be the atrocity that these cruel boys actually commit. After that, we will talk about mostly order because, I mean, we understand that chaos, that's what they do, right? Destruction, that's pretty much, they kind of do atrocities, right? Death. It's their middle uh, name. Yeah, death kind of is a weird thing because they don't typically do the whole atrocity thing. But, like, order should know better, right? Order... An order army is specifically designed, or rather an or, a nation is specifically designed to not commit atrocities, right? They're, they're trying to keep order. Mm -hmm. So we're going to talk a little bit about that, but first we're going to take a break. So I will see you in a little bit. All right, we're back. And we are going to talk about the age of atrocities or the age of Sigmar. Atrocities in the age of Sigmar. <laughs> I originally wanted to do this episode just on cruel boys, but after I was reading them for a little while, I was thinking to myself, well, are they truly the cruelest boys? Like, is there something that like, are there atrocities that others may have committed specifically like order factions that may have gone even over the top for cruel boys? And I guess we should start by defining what I would consider to be an atrocity. I would say that it is extremely wicked or cruel act done with little or no empathy and usually involving physical violence or injury. Although the, it could be mental, like there could be a mental aspect to it. 
you know, mental suffering is just as bad sometimes as physical suffering, but an atrocity, if I had to use a couple of words to, to define it, I would say that it could be described as like barbaric and brutal, savage, wicked, cruel, and usually promotes some sort of outrage and wickedness. Like you would think to yourself, oh, I'm, I'm outraged about this. This is outrageous. You know what I mean? And the overall act has to show inhumanity as we view it. First, I want to talk about the, um, the cruel boys, what I would consider to be their atrocity. And I had to look pretty hard for this because almost everything that a cruel boy does could theoretically be considered an atrocity, but it's just how they are. That's how they were made. Kind of like how chaos is like they pretty much chaos is there to end empires. It's there to break down the foundations of society. So technically all of chaos would be an atrocity. So what, did these guys do what could these cruel boys possibly have done in the past that's like stepping over the line even for them because their nature which is what they do like Mm. it's what you expect them to do and and i have a feeling an atrocity is something that's like over the line you wouldn't expect it yeah so one day a bunch of cruel boys snuck down into shayish and they went down and found an underworld in Shaish before the age of chaos that had a bunch of bugs in it. It was like an afterlife for people who like thought bugs were great because they were industrious and worked hard or something. And then what the cruel boys did was they took it over. They branded the bugs with their clan signs and they just completely, they completely desecrated this afterlife pretty much. So the way that I would view it is let's say you're a Viking, right? And you die in battle and you go to the Viking afterlife, which you believe you'll spend eternity feasting and battling and, you know, fighting armies of the enemies. And then you get there and it's just these smelly swamp orcs that have taken over everything. And they've like spattered the feasting table with like poop and, they, they pissed in all the water and the wine and they like made everything all nasty and everything's all swampy and muddy. And there's, there's just like crap everywhere. They, they like enslaved you, all the rest of your like barbarian tribes and that are supposed to be fighting the afterlife. And then they also enslaved all the, like all the guys you were fighting, supposed to be fighting against. And you show up and they're like, Oh good. You're mine now. Another one. Yeah, yeah. Another one for my for my personal, you know, repertoire of bugs and crap. I feel like that is messed up. That is an atrocity. They didn't just come in and kill everybody because that's what they normally would do anyway. They came in and they fouled an afterlife. So these people who, people or maybe just slightly sentient bugs who were industrious and did everything they were supposed to do and were like, oh, I'm going to go to a nice afterlife. Nope. You're going to be some skull bug boys, a like treasure or something. He's going to use you in battle. Or lunch. We don't know which. Yeah. Or lunch. Because they, like one of the things that they do is they take particularly venomous bugs And then they'll crack them between their teeth, suck out their venom and spit it in a bowl and then ride the delusional coma for two days. Gross. Uh, And mind you, it definitely destroys the thing in the process. So 
that's the bar right there. You've, <laughs> you step up to the pearly gates and Peter is missing. You're like, God? And an orc steps out and he's like, uh-huh. Yep. Get into the chain gang. He's you go like, down to hell. He's got like a really bad fake beard on. So you're like, no, no. And you jump down into hell. You get in line to start like getting into hell. And the devil is like, uh, the, the devil is being ridden by like, by like a break a boss orc. And he tugs on the harness is like, oh yeah, smash that guy. <laughs> that guy said you were weak. Yeah, 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 right? So you could just imagine how just taking over an afterlife like that, that's so terrible. That's the bar. So we've already really covered the Stormcast Eternals in episode four or five. It was episode four, I think. And it ranges from when the Nikes Excelsior, Excelsior mercilessly dragged off anyone who seemed suspicious or were just magic users, to be fair. Um, to the Celestial Vindicators murdering three-fourths of the city in a night to put out a riot. I'd say those are both atrocities, right? Yeah, they all seem pretty horrible. Like, if you have a riot in your city and your response is to kill three-quarters of everybody in that city in one night, that is, that's an atrocity. Like, you're, you're not supposed to be doing that, right? Yeah. Uh, you also talked about, um, how the Sons of Malice... Um, and how they, you know, take pleasure in hunting, torturing, and killing their victims. That has a hint of war crime in it. Even if they hunt evil things, it's still a little bit uh, on the border. Yeah, and let's be clear about this Knights Excelsior thing. There, it's totally 1984. It's it's totally like thought crimes, and anybody that even seems suspicious gets dragged away, and you are expected to like tattle on your neighbors, even if it's not exactly true it's like oh they're a little bit suspicious and therefore drag them down and torture them to death that's pretty brutal right yeah that's that's a pretty interesting atrocity but the sons of malice i i don't know if you would consider it an atrocity but let's say that you had something terrible happen in your village let's say some robbers came in and they stuck up the bank robbed some money maybe like beat up a guy and and then they left, right? Or maybe they even shot and killed a guy and left. But in this example, let's say they beat up a guy and then the Sons of Malice came in and you're like, hey, you reported it to them. You said, okay, well, these are the outlaws and this is the bounty, blah, blah, blah. And they were like, hey, yeah, I can't wait to get my hands on them. And so then you're like, okay, buddy, Um, well, I uh, hope you get them. And then you go off like, Let's say you get a letter that says, okay, we'll come to this place, signed Sons of Malice. So you come to this place and you find out that they like, they hunted these people down, they tortured them, they skinned them alive, they like did every nasty thing to them and then eventually killed them and like hung their bodies up and, and it's obvious that they like took pleasure in the whole bit. And you get there and these like Stormcast Eternals are just laughing and, and playing with this one last guy who they eventually catch and start peeling like strips of skin off of them. And you're like, dude, I know these are criminals and stuff, but holy crap, this is sadistic, right? Like that's an atrocity. Yeah, that that's a pretty, it's like, I have a feeling like it's not just the actual act of it, but enjoying it. That's it's pretty bad. Yeah, right? 
so that's that's the <laughs> this is Stormcast Eternals. You know, that was a lot of atrocities for Stormcast Eternals. Yeah, they have they have a pretty messed up history. Definitely. And for Cities of Sigmar, you know, there are the witch hunters in Excelsius the uh, Excelsis, I'm sorry, that are burning and condemning at every step. You know, humans will be humans and they will do that and they drag people off and that's that's kind of an atrocity, right? I mean, that's we talked about it earlier. Like nineteen eighty four esque stuff. Yeah, just like oh, they 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 look suspicious. I must be a witch. Yeah, definitely. But then you get these other sort of mysterious entries, like the living conflagration of sentient magic that swept across Hallowheart, which is a city of Sigmar known for its magical tendencies. Uh, did they accidentally create the sentient magic, or did they create it on purpose and it got loose? Were they trying to like harness it and it got loose or were they trying to like destroy it or create some sort of like sentient magical weapons? All we know is that the incident killed thousands in the lower city. So like literally thousands of people died here and then 82 mages of the collegiate arcane before it was stopped. So if somebody did create this thing, even if it was by accident, I'd say that was an atrocity. Yeah, it's it's pretty bad. It's like the same caliber of like setting off a, like, I don't know, accidentally, you can't really accidentally set off a bomb. You can accidentally set off, but can you accidentally create a bomb to that caliber where, not sure if it was like an accident or if they purposely burnt it down or like. But either way, a whole lot of people died, right? Oh yeah, so many people died. So that's kind of how that is. What about, you want to take Anvil Guard? Anvil Guard's pretty much a den of thieves and, you know, cutthroats. It's a pretty efficient evil organization though. According to their book, it says, uh, Lord Veritas have not been dispatched to root them out. So they plot, scheme, murder, and act like pirates to do whatever they want. But as long as they are still marching to the beat of Sigmar's war drum, they are free to operate with impunity. Yeah, so how does that make you feel that they can operate pretty much a criminal enterprise and do whatever they want as long as they're, whenever Sigmar beats his war drum, they're like, yeah, sure, we're behind you 100%, buddy. I have a feeling it's like, it's, it's like they just don't care. Like a lot of Sigmar's history and a lot of a lot of different things in in Sigmar. It's like I don't really care as long as you don't like make uh, as long as not a whole lot of people die, like not noticeable amounts. Like people st- people won't worry, and as long as you fight with us, you're on our fighting side. I mean, in in the age of myth, he like he got a whole bunch of people to do his dirty work. That is true. I agree, I agree. So this isn't like necessarily outside of the scope of of what Sigmar would allow, but still it feels bad because you've got like a bunch of outlaws, cutthroats, and when you think about what an evil organization can do to a government when it's like, you know, pretty much this is a banana republic here. These government officials are being influenced by this shadowy organization that's like a mob almost. Yeah, it's the mafia. Yeah, and you know they have to get up to some pretty terrible things because they're very efficient, which means they'll just kill whoever it is that they think is not. Two people can't keep a secret. Yep, that's exactly correct. They're like, oh, you don't want to legislate in our favor? Sucks to be you and your family. And maybe some random kid just goes. Anybody that sees anybody else. I mean, yeah. And also, you have to understand that they also trade in captured and tortured monsters for either their parts 
or their prowess in battle. And so what they'll do is they'll get a monster and like say Charybdis. If they don't need the monster, then they'll kill it and sell its parts. Like it's heart, it's liver, it's lungs, any, anything that's needed or just it's meat, like giant slabs of its meat. Yeah. But if they don't kill it, they will drive it into a horrible frenzy and pretty much torture it. Uh, when they get to a battle, they'll like let it loose on the battlefield, all tortured and, and it'll, they'll just prod it toward the you know enemy. And there you go. If it dies, they'll just sell its parts. They don't care. Yeah. That's cool. kind of cruel, right? That's, that's yeah. definitely cruel. That promotes outrage when you hear, even when it's a monster, right? Yeah. I mean, cruelty in its own way, you know, of life, it is an atrocity. It is. And even though it says that even though Azurite law forbids slavery, the black art Corsairs apparently have a workaround. So they are trading in slaves. Somehow, some way. Though the book didn't go into detail about exactly how. If they found a workaround, then that means that they are trading slaves. Yeah. Slave trading is... It's pretty terrible. It's, I would consider that to be an atrocity, right? That's, it is, in my opinion... The theft of not just your life, but the theft of your ancestors and then also your children. Neither one of them are free to your ancestor. If you make some, like, let's say our family, take our family, right? We've got a mother, a father, and then three kids. If you take us into slavery, then you have undone everything that our parents and grandparents have worked for us and we've inherited through them. You've stolen all of my children's future, and then you've also stolen my own future, and then God knows what you might actually do with us. Yeah. Not to mention all of our stuff, but property and what have you, but it, it's kind of like, I don't know, it just feels really, really terrible, right? Yeah, it's in itself is really wrong. And then even if we do manage to like get out of this, this type of, um, this, this bond, let's say we escape where are we going to go? We can't go back to where we were taken because they now have all our stuff and they, you know, we have to literally start a hundred percent fresh, like a hundred percent with no, no resources, no friends, no family, nothing. So it's very difficult. Like it, it's weird because when you think about slavery, it really takes a lot more than just you or just your life. It takes like pretty much everyone around you. Yep. So that's, I consider that to be pretty atrocious, right? That's pretty terrible. Yeah. And then, okay, so let's talk about fire slayers now. Because fire slayers have had sort of a sordid past. They are pretty traditional in that they'll fight for your gold. But they've also done things like helped a chaos warlord named Magarak destroy an entire empire for Urgul. They went to this, they went to this uh, city or this nation full of people and they used their magma droths to melt the walls. So that way the chaos Lords could go in and just slaughter everything. Yeah. It's pretty atrocious. I, I wouldn't say the act is an atrocity because there are acts like that happen all the time, right? You, you get the siege of a city and once that happens, people go in and they get murdered. Yeah. That's not necessarily out of line for what happens, but what's out of line is that they're working with chaos. They're working with a chaos general to do this. They know that when they accept that Urgold, that there is no way the people in that city are going to do anything except for come to a messy end. 
they know that unless they did something for chaos, like I know this is sort of a taken back. They helped him destroy this empire, this entire empire. This is not like a like a city. It's an empire. Yeah. So imagine that they helped them destroy all of Texas, all of Texas, all of Texas. Just as an example, just because it's big. That's only, and it's got many multiple cities and lots of rural areas and everything like that. So let's say that these guys in exchange for Urgold just decided, Oh, we'll just destroy that entire state. Right. Which is an empire to these people. Yeah. And they knew it's not like it's their neighbor who might just take them over and, you know, force them to into a certain rule of law in one way. This is chaos. So they know that they're just going to come in and destroy everything, raise it to the ground, salt the earth, burn everything, people included, and they just didn't care. Chaos is chaos. They do pretty much what you expect them to do. Yeah, so that's definitely, it felt out of character, you know, for an order army. But what's also out of character is what Evelyn's going to talk about next, the fire-blooded brothers of the Hand Lodge. So they gave into their Urgold hunger, their addiction, and murdered and desecrated their way through other forge temples and consumed, like, the gold runes off of, like, the remains of their brothers. It took 12 other lodges acting in unison to bring them in. That's that's a lot. It's a lot yeah. of other lodges. So you can imagine when they pound these runes into their chest, it's like an addiction, like a drug. And it feeds and it feeds and it feeds. And then it, the need gets stronger and stronger. And these people... Normally, a forge father helps them temper this, and their own resiliency helps them temper this need. And they're like, "No, I'm only going to have as much as my brother has, and you know those beside me." So he kind of meets out how much Urgold gets stamped into everybody's body through these like you know, etchings, and or they consume it. And I guess these people murdered their forge father, went on a killing spree. Yeah, like I have a feeling. It's really probably really hard to manage. Like one slip up and they could just you know, go crazy, murder a bunch of people, eat them. And when I was reading this battle tome, this is one thing that I really, really loved. I love the thought that they could descend into cannibalism just because of this Urgold dependency. It had a real like flesh eater quartz vibe about it. it. Does sort of have that same vibe of like they think you know they're normal, they're an order thing. They think they're noble, but it's a little uh look chaotic down there it's definitely crazy okay so then we get to okay that isn't even the worst part the worst one from these guys at least i think is the hermder lodge who murdered all of the seven crystal cities and salted their lands because after they defended their lands against chaos the leaders wouldn't pay them the urgold that they promised them so when you think about this I would maybe support them destroying the ruling council, right? Wouldn't that make sense? Like, oh, you're not going to pay us? We'll just kill you all. And maybe the next ruling council will pay us. Yeah, that that doesn't seem out of character. Because they could. Obviously, they definitely could. But killing every single man, woman, and child, and living being, including all of their livestock, all of their animals, their entire society in seven cities— and then murdering their whole civilization, destroying it all, burning it, and salting the earth, that feels like an atrocity. Yeah, like that seems like over the line. You Definitely know, over the line. They could have just like, it doesn't really seem like them, but they could just like nicely ask, be like, hey, like the next council that comes around, be like, hey, 
Did you give us this Urgold? Now, I'm not saying that they shouldn't have resorted to violence here, but killing hundreds, like these cities hold hundreds of thousands of people. It's it's a lot of people. They destroyed the entire civilization. And there's seven of them. That feels like an atrocity here. Like I know they weren't, they didn't get what was owed to them. They didn't get what was promised. How is that really the fault of every single child in every one of those cities? Yeah, I'm feeling they would have done better if they just like stole it than if they. No, they should not have stolen it. That feels like a dwarf would never have done that. But murder all seven cities down to every living thing. That I wouldn't existed. say a dwarf would do that either. But what I could see them definitely doing is murdering everybody in charge. Oh yeah, that like that makes sense. Murdering their whole through their whole government, and then waiting until they install another government and say, "Okay, do you guys want to pay us?" Because that would have made a much better impact on the society at large and the entirety of the human population nearby, because. All of a sudden, it would be like, well, if you don't pay these guys, then they will destroy everybody who has power. Anybody who has that decision to make, they will murder you hard. And then wait. And yeah, and then wait. One thing I noticed about people who have a lot of money is that they tend to like, they they want to keep that money, but they want to keep their own life intact a lot more than that money. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I feel like if, if the new ruling council knew that that was what was going to happen until they got what was promised them, then they would definitely have given them that the Urgold. So that's, Oh, that's the fire slayers. They're, they're a little bit messed up. Yeah. It's just, just a little bit, <laughs> but the, okay. So now we're going to talk a little bit about the daughters of Cain because their entire race feels like an atrocity. They get up, commit an atrocity, eat breakfast, probably blood of the atrocity they committed before this. They repeat the process until they're too tuckered out from atrocities and dream about the atrocities that they'll commit tomorrow. And that is essentially Daughters of Cain. That's just them in their entirety. That point. But, yeah. But when you think about how who they are, how they were made, who they were made in the image of, and what they worship then you kind of, it's kind of like the, um, the cruel boys where you have to take them in a different light because you know, they're going to be killing people, but there has to have been a couple of instances that are considered to be like above and beyond, right? Just over the line. Yeah. Over the line. And so I would, I would definitely say one time that they were over the line or specifically Marathi is over the line was when she allowed an enormous civil war to break out and then she allowed it to spiral out of control just to weed out potential rivals and thin the herds. She was like, oh, this big civil war is breaking out. Let me just make it worse and fan the flames. And and then she used it to destroy possible rivals. And um, she's like, well, anybody that was killed, they were too weak anyway. An event that is known as the Atrocity at Excelsis, um, they don't speak about it a whole lot. However, it's odd since Excelsis is such a already a really really extreme place like a really extreme area they must have done something so exceptionally terrible to earn that moniker in that place also in the age of myths she had her covens wipe out a ton of barbarian tribes um near some greenskins and then lied to sigmar saying that they were like corrupted and probably had some chaos in them yeah so right now what we we talked about what we already considered to be an atrocity happening at Excelsis. 
what did she do in the past that is specifically called the atrocity at Excelsis? How bad could that have been? It must have been pretty awful, right? It must have been. Those poor barbarian tribes. I like the Daughters of Cain were supposed to just go down and kill all the greenskins, right? And they were like, well, um, there's some barbarian tribes down here. We'll just kill them too. And they were like, no problem, Sigmar. They were, they were corrupted by like chaos or something. And Sigmar was like, right. But I get the feeling Sigmar couldn't really do much about that. So that definitely feels like an atrocity. Yeah. I feel like a lot of Sigmar can't really do much about it. Yeah. He's kind of, his hands are really tied through his, like he doesn't choose his friends very well. It really doesn't. Like Dracothia, no problem. That was, that was a solid alliance, solid first alliance. But then everybody else, mm, yeah. <laughs> oh, so then what she did was she sent a lot of the war covens across the realms in search of these things called the Shards of Cain. But the entire time that they were on all these holy missions where they went across all right realms and like slaughtered and destroyed and murdered their way across the realm, she had the only, Marathi, had the only other Shard of Cain that, was still, that still existed. She lied to her people and sent them out to murder indiscriminately on a fool's errand. And for what reason? And she knew, like, she was like, this is mine. I have, I have one, but this is the last one. So she must have either been like, oh, I wonder, I wonder. Or she must have just been like, I like killing. Yeah, I feel like she, she knew now. Mm-hmm. Because when she went to go get the heart of Cain, the iron heart of Cain, she had to fight the God of Charybdises and she, she changed into this like snake form and coiled around it and like strangled it. Oh Jesus. Yeah. So nobody knows if it's, it's alive or not. She's pretty nasty. That, that feels like an atrocity, right? If you like, let's say you send out, hundreds of bands of murder warriors out to find like the Holy grail, but you already had the Holy grail like locked in a room behind them. Like the whole time you're like, no, go out and murder your way across the land. Find this Holy grail for me. Yes, sir, boss. And, and they just kill everybody looking Mm. for it. That's crazy. So a little bit of a change is we're going to pivot to the Ideneth Deepkin who, I mean, we, we already know that they commit what might be considered atrocities because they steal souls, but at least they have to do it. They, they can't like not do that. Right. They have to prey on somebody. Usually it's, it, it started with ships. And then let me give you a little bit of background. When the Idenet Deepkin fled under the ocean, they decided to set up their cities and they said to themselves, we'll have children. And unfortunately 99 out of a hundred children that they had were born with these shriveled souls and were like aborted and elves aren't exactly very like they don't exactly procreate very quickly, mostly because they're goddess of, of abundance of like being able to procreate is captured and in Nurgle's garden, Nurgle captured her. Oh, Chris. They already procreate very slowly. And then these ones, 99 out of a hundred of them, just would were born with shriveled useless souls so what they found was they they needed to consume the souls of other living sentient beings they tried to use undersea creatures Mm -hmm. like big 
Undershe Behemoth, and it kind of worked, but not really. But then by chance, one of them happened to suck the soul out of like a, a sentient creature, sentient living being, and it worked like a thousand times better or something. Like it, it was really, really so much better. That's not the atrocity, by the way. This is just background to the atrocity. Uh, so once Teclas created them and sort of they found he found out that they had these like kind of corrupted souls a little bit because they were in Slanesh. He created this this lantern <clears throat> and it was called the Light of Truth. And then he just kind of turned it on. And what the Light of Truth did was it tortured their entire race. Their entire race all of a sudden as soon as this light of truth was on, which I believe it was sort of like a light of hish that was trapped into a lantern, it burned them and made them crazy, drove them crazy. The whole race, every just, single one of them. And that's just awful. So much so that they fled to the depths of the oceans to try to get away from this. And for many of them, it just made them insane. That's an atrocity. Yeah. In my opinion, because Teclas made these people. And then he made something that tortured them and was like, he was like, Oh, don't worry. Some of you might get better. Yeah. I feel like that's an atrocity on Teclas himself. Yeah. That's what I mean. Yeah. Like, and they eventually, they did eventually steal this thing. And, uh, it's funny because Marathi stole it back from them recently and then used it to lure them into attacking a city to get it back. And they were like, wanted this thing back. They were like, Nope, we have got to get it back. doesn't matter if every one of you dies we have to get this thing back. I feel like that's on Teclas. That is an atrocity on Teclas. And, you know, I could talk a lot about indolence and indulgence and the, you know, the Lumineth realm lords. They may have committed atrocities on the land, but this is something that is way out of character, right? Like this should never have happened. No, it doesn't seem like you, you imagine Teclas, you imagine this like really bright, like and a bright being. Somebody who's like really like well known and he like but he like makes these people and then does this like really awful things to them and you don't really expect it's out of character. And mind you, this was solution number two after his solution number one, which was he just wanted to kill every one of them. Maybe he wasn't the one who's supposed to be making these. Uh, I know, solutions. right? Like maybe he's not the best, you know, most balanced person to be making races of people. So this is the, it's funny because Tyrion actually talked him out of killing all of these people. He was like, well, brother, we did just make them. Maybe we shouldn't kill them all. And Teclas was like, no problem. I got you, brother. Instead, I'll just torture them until they're insane. Or they get better, one or the other. Yeah, that some will get better. That's that's the good part. It's like his brother's like, but like two of them out of the entire population. Yeah, and even they don't like it. I can't. I couldn't imagine that. Although the Deepkin did commit what I would consider to be an atrocity, not just that they stole souls and used them. That's like what they needed to survive. They're kind of like soul blight vampires almost, right? Yeah. But what they did was they went up the, to this dwarf hold and they killed half of them. And I'm guessing stealing their souls in the process. Yeah. And then they put the other half into a coma by stealing their souls while they were still living. Ew. Never to awaken. So I like, I'm guessing they didn't need to do that. They could have just like killed them. Right. 
And, and if you think about it, like if they did this to exactly half of the dwarfs, then that means that the dwarfs must have, they must have like surrendered at some point. Probably. They must have said, okay, let's, let's go ahead and treat with you. What do you want? Or maybe they decided, okay, we'll, we'll be, you know, let, let's treat. And the Aiden and Thikram were like, sure, go to sleep and we'll steal everybody's soul. Yeah. I have a feeling it may have been like a, hey, I'll give you half of my army and, and you let me go. And they were like, sure, half of your army. Well, they killed the other half. Yeah, like one half was probably like the, the, the ones that sleep. They like willingly came over, you know, alive. And the other half they probably just like killed. But can you imagine the other dwarfs, like say their cousins, come over from to their hold and they, they come inside and there's all of these comatose dwarves that will never awaken again. And they hadn't touched a single ingot of gold. They hadn't stolen anything else from them. Ugh. They hadn't left any, they dragged away their dead. So there's no, like, there's no way for them to tell the, the dwarves to tell that the Iden and Thiepkin were there. They were just left with a like half of a sleeping city, essentially. So then they would have this horrible moral quandary of like, do we put these, these dwarfs to death or do even worse, these dwarfs are going to like slowly starve in a coma, you know, in a coma Mm -hmm. and nobody has the resources to hand feed and, you know, water half of a city, even in our modern times, we wouldn't be able to do it. So they had to either let them starve to death or in their sleep or give them a messy end. Yeah. The feeling they also had that moral question of, are they even alive at that point? Yeah. Yeah. So that's definitely an atrocity. If I ever saw one, wouldn't you say? Yeah. Weirdly enough, I couldn't find any instances where the Caradon overlords committed any atrocities. So if you know of one, please let me know. Uh, they do wage war. They kind of backstab and they, they, are very weird over small details. And the other dwarfs do say, read the contract 10,000 times before signing with the Caradron overlords, which means that they kind of can't be trusted. Uh, but their laws forbid them doing anything too overly heinous to each other or pretty much to other races. I'm sure they've, they've probably wiped out their fair share of greenskins, but that's like not necessarily an, atroc- an atrocity. Like I wouldn't consider them wiping out greenskins or greenskins wiping out them atrocities, right? Yeah, it's, it's because that's just war. It just happens. Like that's that's war for survival between two races that hate each other. It's kind of like uh, you can't hate the the lioness who kills the hyenas to feed their young, and you also can't hate the hyenas who steal the lioness's cubs and kill them all while the lioness is out. That's that's kind of like nature. They're yeah. they're battling over territory. Right. And, and food and everything. It's a rival. Yeah. So for, for the orcs and the dwarfs or the Cairdron overlords, it is kind of survival for them to go to war with each other and wipe each other out. It's not like they aren't doing it. Like say the Idenet Deepkin did to those dwarfs just to like leave half a city's worth of sleeping dwarfs, <laughs> comatose dwarfs. Mm-hmm. That's just, it, it's, it's what you would say shocking and evil and horrible, you know? Now, they did stand by 
sit and just watch Stormcast Eternals lose battles at the beginning of the Age of Sigmar because there was they were like bound by contract. But that same contract that bound them to sit there and watch a battle go a losing battle also made it so that they didn't, you know, they didn't wipe out three quarters of a city in one night. They didn't go they, over and destroy whole civilizations. They didn't let a rebellion happen to, you know, kill off their rivals. Yeah. I, I don't, I feel like a failure to act isn't like murdering a bunch of their own kin for due to a rebellion or, you know, like becoming crazy with Urgold and eating a bunch of your own fellows, right? It's just not the same. So it's kind of a false dichotomy. So if you can find anything about, uh, about the character nerve rollers, let me know, but I, I really couldn't find much. Oh, uh, what about the Seraphon? Um, the Seraphon did leave their Stormcast allies to die so that they could like go destroy a silver tower through uh, this uh, realm gate. But that was less of an atrocity and a little bit more like cold logic. Um, like if you think about it, um, everything they've been told about Stormcast Eternals, you know, they're eternal. They, they die, they're just reborn. And if it served a good purpose, then they, it was probably worth considering. Yeah, remember, this was a sacrifice in battle. It's not like they just turned and left their allies to die for no good reason. They had a good reason, which is they wanted to strike and destroy that one silver tower that they saw and they knew was there. And they reasoned that the Stormcast Eternals could just be remade. Because, I mean, we know that Stormcast Eternals have problems, but they don't necessarily know that. Yeah, I have a feeling, um, like you were talking about in the Storm, actual Stormcast podcast, they keep a lot of their secrets secret. Like a lot of the a lot of the races think that oh they're mighty powerful, you know, you defeat a Stormcast Eternal. It's like wow, that's so superhuman. You know, they get reborn, but you know, it's all right. But there's a lot of problems. Definitely. Now, one thing that I kind of liked about the Seraphon, they do have these little biospheres in their ships where they let their their young grow up and it they they act like little Darwinistic proving grounds where the weakest get eaten and the strongest survive and they just sit back and watch and then they take the strongest and make them into warriors to yeah. fight wars. But I don't, I don't feel like that's really an atrocity as to, much as it's just like kind of morally skewed a little bit, but morals yeah. depend morals vary based off of the person. So, but thing. this is real again, more cold blooded logic because if they needed like as humans, we tend to value each and every single life because we think of that life as that one person that came before them, but they might not think of it like that just because a, they might not even be sentient at that point. They might just be animalistic mm -hmm. or B it's like, okay, well if you lay a clutch of a hundred eggs and you, but you really only need three good warriors. Wouldn't you kind of just let them, you know, kill each other off? Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of like in nature how there's like that kind of natural selection. Like uh, the only example I can think of right now is like with turtles when they like, yeah the turtles. Sorry, it's just really odd, but like when they when they're like walking across the beach, if there's no implications with the city and stuff, and they just sort of waddle across and the fastest get across and if you get picked off then you get picked off but By like seagulls and every predator under the sun crabs yeah but if you make it across then you're probably gonna live you have a much higher chance of living once you get into the water yeah so i, I kind of 
I kind of view the uh, Seraphon in almost the same way that I view the Sylvaneth. They're kind of more animalistic than anything else. They're neutral. If they're hungry, they eat. If they are, you know, if there's something in their territory, they'll kill it. Uh, if they, but otherwise they probably wouldn't just kill, let's say a pack animal just for the pleasure of it. Right. That's not, it's a, they would consider it to be just resources lost. Yeah. It's like someone's like, why, why would you do that? You know, we might need that. I mean, we know that the Sylvaneth and specifically the branch wraiths will spitefully kill anybody that enters their territory with no regard for pity or mercy, but is that really an atrocity or is that just them defending their territory because they know, Hey, humans have come here in the past and they, they come to burn and chop orcs have come here in the past and they've come to burn and chop chaos has come here in the past and they come to do maybe even worse things. Burn and eat every single person that comes to their forest usually just wants to like chop it down and use it for firewood or use it to make stuff. And I have a feeling that if there was a race of people or things that wanted to come over and like chop our hands off and use them to make things, we'd be like, no, we're going to kill every one of you that tries to come over and chop us down and make us into like flesh palaces, flesh palaces. Yeah. Like, can you imagine gingerbread houses? Yeah. Flesh gingerbread houses. There's a guy that's like, no, 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 no. Listen, listen, listen. We only want like, 20 or 30 of you and we're like what no you can't have even one of us and they're like well you just you're just big flesh human trees right we're like that doesn't matter we we think and feel and are that's that's my wife over there and guys like uh it just kind of looks like an oak tree to me so there's definitely a little bit of a divide there yeah i feel like um it's uh, like it's a lot of the they don't want to die so just killing anything that they think is like going to be harmful to them. Sort of, like you said, animalistic. Yeah, it's a good response, right? It's everything wants to kill them. Everything wants to chop them down, burn them up, and use them for firewood and to make stuff. And that's pretty awful. Let me ask you then. Of all the atrocities that we just talked about, which one do you think is the worst? Is it still the Cruel Boys? Um, I'm not so sure if it's still the Cruel Boys. Like, the Cruel Boys... Yeah, they messed up an entire afterlife. Uh, that's pretty bad. But if there had to be one that m- was over them, it might have to be... It's definitely one of the Sigmar ones because it's, it's so odd that Sigmar ha- is so messed up. Like, maybe the atrocities seem bigger because they, they're supposed to be so noble, so any atrocity feels like a, a really yeah. bad. But also, like, um, the Fire Slayers, that one... That one uh, faction that just, like, ate their brothers, that's that's pretty bad, too. Pretty terrible. I feel like they're all atrocities, and they're all pretty much on the same level of, like, that's pretty bad. I shouldn't do that. Yeah, definitely. Every, like, I would always say, we, we shouldn't do any one of those things. That we, should, we definitely not do that. But, but if you had to pick one. If I had to pick one. Hmm. There's no wrong answers here. They're all pretty terrible. Yeah, I mean... I don't want my answer to influence your answer. That's why I'm asking you to go first. Yeah, that makes sense. So I have mine set in my head, which one I, I pick. Uh, I think, actually, as much as I didn't talk about this one, um, when Marathi was like, here, there's this shard that's like that I only have. Go go murder people for looking for it. And then she sent 
hundreds and hundreds of war covens out to just murder their way across the land. Yeah, and it's like all the realms, so it's like so many things. That is that was pretty awful. I will say that is a good atrocity. Good atrocity. Let's see. I'm gonna pick the fire slayers, but not the one that you were talking about. I'm picking the one where they destroyed all seven crystal cities. Makes and sense. Murdered an entire civilization because they because the ruling council wouldn't pay them. Has a similar energy. Yeah, like ruling, murdering a civilization. It, like when you think about what in our history, like in our, like if you go all the way back to history and prehistory, what would have been the most ruthless act by a ruling body or like a government or a nation or a people? It has to be, it probably has to be the Assyrians. Because they were so absolutely, awful. yes, they were absolutely ruthless. If you did not do what they wanted, then they would just come in and kill every single one of everybody in your nation. And a lot of times they would start with the ruling, like the rulers, and work their way down. Yeah, because I have a feeling it's a lot easier if you get rid of the top and then sort of work your way down. Yeah, and that feels like this. This, this, like, when you destroy a nation of people, that takes, that takes a lot. It takes work. Yeah, it's not just work, but it's like, it's, they burned everything. They made sure nothing existed from the civilization. Salted the earth. They destroyed all of their architecture. Burned all of their scrolls, any books that they possibly had. Centers of learning. Their history, pretty much. They were like, okay, we're going to take your past, present, and future and out the window. Whip. Yeah. Uh, that is pretty awful. It's really over the top. Yeah. And I feel like they must have spent more resources than they would have gotten from Oh, that. definitely. Like, that's, they probably spent more your gold than they actually probably would have gotten just from like having guys die. Well, they don't spend die. it when they, because when they die, they just cremate the body and get it back. Oh, yeah, that's, that's right. They, they still spent resources. But yeah, it's definitely resources and they, it must have taken a long time. Oh yeah. You do not just murder a civilization in like. Seven of them. Seven, seven cities. It's pretty terrible. So those are the atrocities and that's what I would consider. That was actually the question for today. The question and answer was which atrocity do you think is actually the worst in Age of Sigmar? And I know we've talked about a pretty weird and horrible subject, but it's mentioned very casually in these books. Uh, and they, like a lot of times the books from GW talk about great battles and they talk about the things that a civilization does and how it builds up. And, but then every once in a while it'd be these little gems of things that are just so horrible when you contemplate exactly what happened here uh, in a way that is inhumane. We would not consider doing it to each other. I'm brought back to when we dropped an atomic bomb after we saw what, what happened there, we were shell shocked. We were, you know, we were not as the people who dropped it. We were just absolutely mortified by what we had done. Right. Yeah. And as a, as a society, just as a people, we were like, Oh my God, this is, this, this is awful. And to have something happen in even a war game that, that is just cruel, inhumane, that conjures up levels of resentment that might exist for thousands of years. 
is just, it's, it's heartbreaking almost, right? Yeah. And in the books, like you were saying, it's brought up almost not quite casually, but really it's, they don't ever make a big deal out of it, which makes sense, especially with some of the order things. Like some of these, when I first like learned about these armies, I knew the fire slayers, like they were addicted to this year old, but I wouldn't think they would, you know, burn and kill and absolutely pillage these entire seven cities. Like, it's something that I think they gloss over and they don't make a big deal out of it because, you know, it's not what they're, like, it's not what they're... So, like, this doesn't define the society. We're just talking about a slight atrocity that happened in the past. And you're like, what? Excuse me? What? It's, It's weird because they, it almost feels like a footnote in their history rather than something that would define a culture. Yeah. Like in our, and I'm, I'm not, I'm trying very hard not to use recent cultures or cultures of, of human civilization that are still countries. That's why I went back to the ancient Assyrians because the Assyrians, I mean, nobody's going to be like, Oh my God, I'm so offended. I was an Assyrian or my father was an Assyrian. Not a big deal. Not a big deal. Those are like people that were died and they're gone. Right. There's no, I can talk about that. So when we think about what they did, we, uh, it defines them as yeah. a nation. You say they were particularly bloodthirsty. They had a tree that had severed heads of monarchs on it. Yeah, they were. That's like, it's like instead of a footnote, it's like an entire chapter or the title of their book. Yeah. Like they, they when people would come to treat with them, they would sit them in a lobby and the lobby would have tapestries of Assyrians like killing people and disemboweling them and putting them to torture. Sounds like and so this is what these people would look at while they were waiting to see like the ruling body. Oh, yeah, that's, that's definitely a power move right there. <laughs> yeah. So this is what defined the entirety of, of, of that nation and of that nation's history when we read about them. We don't necessarily read about their goals, their aspirations, any great leaps in technology that they may have had. We think about these things. And even the Persians that came after them, the Persians who were by like, uh, (laughs) they were so much less bloodthirsty. Like the Persians would go up to somebody and they'd say, oh, well, you're, um, you're good at doing this. So we're going to co-opt you into our kingdom and not a whole lot will change. You can still rule. We just need whatever it is that you're good at. And we need you to just give that to the Persian empire or sell it to the Persian empire. They wouldn't say, give it to them. They'd Mm -hmm. say, sell it to them or teach us how to do it. That's kind of how the Persians acted. But you could see, you know, from the movie 300, they were described as these like bloodthirsty invade invading barbarians, right? Because of, one atrocity on one nation. Yeah, in like one instance. One incident. But it didn't define their society, even though we've sort of typecast them like that. Yeah, I have a feeling a lot of that probably also has to go with um, what happened, like what came before them. Because if they committed like one atrocity on one nation, it only happened one time. But before them were like these people that consistently committed atrocities like one would seem pretty terrifying because you're like oh god is this gonna happen more yeah and with age of sigmar these order factions they're not supposed to be like this they're not supposed to be committing these things these atrocities these horrible events 
that would in any other nation define them in the history books. In this one, it's just like a little footnote, you know. Yeah. You just casually destroy nations. Yeah, like I said earlier, it's a footnote, not a chapter. Right, right. Well, I think that's going to wrap it up for this episode. Thank you so much for being on with me, Evelyn. Uh, no problem. Thank you for letting me do this again. It was very nice. Yeah, I, I really like talking with Evelyn about this kind of stuff. Well, not this kind of stuff, but about the lore and about you know, everything else. And I hope you guys had, at least I hope it was informative and the Cruel Boy stuff was a little bit enjoyable. I can't wait to start painting up some of the rest of these models. And uh, remember, Hobby Promises, right? Hobby Promises. From the heart. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Have a good day. What? I, I don't know. <laughs> have a, have great, a good day. I, I mean, like, no, I you're can... supposed to say, don't have a good day. Have a great day. <laughs>